The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Imagine um, that you are about to begin a new job, or sorry, not you, your, your neighbor is about to begin a new job uh, at a factory for which he needs to buy some steel toe boots, okay? So a decent pair of steel toes is going to run about 200 bucks, uh, and your neighbor doesn't have it. Uh, he, he doesn't have any credit, so he doesn't have a credit card, he doesn't have any income, he doesn't have any cash in the bank. Uh, because he's, he's unemployed uh, up until now. He's been unemployed. And, and, and if he's like a, a lot of Hamiltonians, it's like, what choice has he got? And, and one of the choices that he might uh, avail himself of is what's called a payday loan. So here's how payday loan uh, joints work. Uh, you go with what, you're, with what you need and you fill out the paperwork and they will give you uh, the 200 bucks that you need to, to buy your boots. So they're going to, so imagine they give him the $200 he needs two weeks later at it, when he gets his first pay, um, they're going to, he's going to owe them $42 in interest on top of the original 200. That's so it's $21 a week to borrow. Uh, and, and, and you might think that that means, well, so 21 bucks a week, that's not terrible interest. It's, it's 21%. It's actually not that amount of the, like $21 a week works out to 546% interest uh, calculated annually. Kids, we can talk about how that works later. And if for some reason your friend can't pay the money back after two weeks, what's going to happen is uh, at the end of that second week, he's going to have a, an NSF, a non-sufficient funds charge of for another $40. And so three weeks later, if he has to, when he has to go and pay that money back, he borrowed 200 and he'll have to pay back after three weeks, he'll have to pay back $303. $303 on 200. And you might think nobody would ever take that deal. Like that doesn't make any sense, but you would be wrong because for every first time customer who uses a payday loan place in Hamilton, there are 15 repeat payday loan customers. And you know where we tend to find these shops located? They, they are clustered, wouldn't you know it, around Hamilton's downtown. The main users are the people who can least afford it. Low income families, people with the lowest, yeah, people with the lowest income. Is that a coincidence? It's, it's actually not. Now, to me, that is wrong. That's an example of, of a system. It's something that, it's a system that preys on the poor and is meant to lure them in and keep them trapped in their poverty. And it's like, what can we do as the church about that? Like we could, I mean, there's some options of how we could respond. We could, um, we could give them money to pay off the interest on his loan. We could go with him at first to the store to buy the boots that he needs. We could support him that way. You could start a petition to city council and, and lobby them to get rid of these payday loan places out of the downtown core. There's lots of, lots of ways you could respond. But what if after all of that, you know, suppose you do the right, what you think is the right thing. And after all of that, the guy just says, you know what, would you just maybe give me the, give me the cash and I'll just, I'll be out of your hair. Thanks a lot for your help. And then he goes and he spends the $200 on weed and he doesn't end up taking the job after all of that. Now that happens, right? Like this isn't easy. This, things like this happen uh, all the time. So this morning, we're continuing through our series called In Hamilton As It Is In Heaven. What we're doing here is we are focusing on, on certain issues and challenges that affect our 
us and our neighbors in Hamilton in order to dream of what it really ought to be like and to think through practical ways that we as the church can respond. So last week we began the series by talking about God's love for the city. This morning we are continuing by focusing on the issue of poverty. We're talking about poverty. Now this is such a huge subject. We could spend weeks on it and really only just sort of scratch the surface. Uh, in fact, the more that I think about the issue of poverty in Hamilton, the worse that I feel, like the, the less qualified and competent I feel to speak about this thing. I mean, um, I used to think that when I would serve the poor in Hamilton, it would be really easy. And like we would, I would join them in solidarity in, in, and we would like build the barricades and wave the flags and it'd be like in Les Miserables and we would, all the poor would rise up and we would sing, do you hear the people sing? And we would have this amazing victory and it just doesn't work like that. Serving the port isn't isn't like that at all. It's it's like it's hard. Lots of Hamilton's poor don't want to be friends with you. They're not interested in sermons. And sometimes it's embarrassing. And sometimes it's kind of belittling. And I just want to name that feeling today. I think that if we can actually learn to be okay with being humbled as we serve the poor, that's actually when God can use us in the lives of our neighbors living in poverty. In fact, the thesis that I'm operating from this morning is this. I have a thesis, okay? It's this. Christians who spend time serving the poor have life-transforming experiences of Christ that we couldn't have if we only hung out with the middle class. All right, let me say that again. Christians who spend time serving the poor have life-transforming experiences with Jesus that we couldn't have if we only ever hang out with the middle class. And I'm going to show that by dealing with five questions. Five questions I want to tackle this morning quickly are, who are the poor? What do we owe the poor as the church? What do we owe them? Third, what's it like to be poor in Hamilton? Number four, why is this the church's job? Why is it our responsibility? And number five, what if we don't get it right? What if we don't get it right? Now, just so you know, there is a phone number at the bottom of the screen. As we go along, if you have questions about what you see or about what you hear, feel free to text them in. And if we haven't answered them by the end of the message, we'll make time at the end of the service. We can uh, we can answer them that way. So uh, number one, who are the poor? So what qualifies a person to be poor, specifically through the lens of Scripture? It's interesting, you know, as you as you look at the Scriptures, at what at who's included under the category of poor or under the language of, in the language of poverty, you're going to see that it's this sweeping term that applies to all kinds of people, not just those who are, who have just, you know, very little money. Uh, like the term poor or, and, and, and the language of poverty relates to uh, the hungry. It refers to the prisoners and the homeless and the weak and the elderly and people who are wandering from town to town. It refers to people with disabilities. It refers to refugees or people who've survived natural disasters and wars. The poor refers to orphans and single parent families and, uh, and widows. And you know what all of these things, all of these people have in common is that they have fewer resources, less, uh, fewer means. They have less power than the rest of their neighbors. The bottom line here is they just they don't have what God wants for them. They don't have the the resources and the power that they need in order to flourish uh, in the world that God has given us. Okay, they don't have the means to to flourish in our society. But you know what else is interesting about those in poverty in the Bible is it actually doesn't matter whose fault it is. Think of that. 
in scripture, it doesn't matter whose fault their poverty is. Because, you know, sometimes poverty is the result of bad choices. You, you drink too much. You spend too much of your money on gambling or on, or on prostitutes. Or, or uh, you, you quit the good job that you had. Sometimes, though, poverty is because of circumstances that are outside your control. Like there is a, a you know, your, your husband dies and he's the breadwinner of the family. Or there's a famine in the land and that, that's outside your control. Or, or the king is, is corrupt and he raises taxes uh, beyond what you can afford and so your family goes hungry. And what's interesting here is that the Bible doesn't discriminate. Okay, the Bible doesn't discriminate. The, who, the poor is whoever lacks the power and the resources to thrive, regardless of whether it's their fault or somebody else's. I just, and I think that that's really important to catch. So that's, that's who we mean when we're talking about the poor. Next question is, what do we owe the poor? Like, what is it that God is asking of us? You know, I'm actually persuaded that God's will isn't for us to fix poverty so much as it is for us to serve the poor. And there's, there's lots of good reasons for that, I think, and we're, we're going to come to some of those. But if we just look at Isaiah chapter 58, a, a small chunk of which we heard read a few minutes ago by Ronnie, in, in Isaiah 58, that's where God is correcting his people who have been behaving like, like hypocrites in their worship. And, and God is saying to them, like, I'm not impressed if you get through, get your worship service right, like if you get your liturgy down and you have lots of people who are coming to, to, to church, that's really great, but that's not what impresses me. That is not the worship. That's not the fast that I choose. The fast that I choose is the one that makes a difference in the lives of those around you. And so I actually think in, in what he goes on and describes there, I think that the Lord has, he, he refers to at least three different forms of service to the poor that God's people are called to practice. And so I just want to highlight what those are. One, one form of service to the poor is charity. It's what we would call charity or relief or mercy ministry. And so when God says in Isaiah 58, share your bread with the hungry, that's an example of charity. Okay, that's, that's where you just give the person in need what they need. Okay, like if you donate food, if you donate clothing, or if you volunteer at the Dream Center, that's an example of charity, okay? This can be really up close and personal, but it's certainly not the only way to help the poor. It might not even be the, the most strategic uh, way to help the poor, depending on the situation. But when one of our faith families hosted a Christmas party for the folks at the Rosalind Center, that was an example of charity. When Jesus says to, the, to his disciples, you clothed me, you fed me, uh, whatever you did for the least of these, you did to me, he's talking there about charity. And charity is certainly one way to serve the poor, but it's not the only one. Because another one is support, by, by providing support. Or this might be justice ministry or development. And so when God says in Isaiah 58, I want you to set the prisoner free, like bring the homeless into your house and clothe the naked. What he's saying there is offer support. Give them what they need so that they're not, they're not so dependent on you. And so that's, a, that's an investment, okay? That, that takes a little bit longer, a little bit more effort, but its impact can be longer lasting. And so in Acts chapter 2, for example, when the church collected their possessions and sold them in order to give to the poor, that was support. And when the Apostle Paul would travel from church to church in Asia and Europe and taking up a collection in order to give it to the poor people in Jerusalem, that was an example of support, 
Here in Hamilton, if somebody asks you for money for, for change, if you go and you offer them a job instead, or if you teach them ESL, or if you train them in how to use Microsoft Office, those are examples of support because you're making sure that they have the skills and the ability to thrive without you. And so that's support. And then a third way that, the, that uh, we see people called to respond to the poor is through reform. You might call this activism. So in Isaiah 58, when God said, I want you to break the chains of wickedness. I want you to get those chains broken. I want you to untie the ropes of the yoke and untie every yoke. Now, a yoke is this bar that would hang over a slave. And, and so when, in untying that yoke, that's a way, that's, or it's a symbol of breaking the system calling out and saying this system is broken and wrong and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And so God is calling his people to dismantle the systems that keep people trapped in poverty. And so in in the Old Testament, we see all kinds of prophets who who stand up to the wicked and corrupt kings and their or the, the, the wicked conduct of the priests uh, and the scribes of Israel and, and telling them that they are corrupt and they need to stop. So that's, that's an example of activism and, and reform. When God made it a law that the farmers in, in Israel were not to plow to all the, or harvest all the way to the edges of their field, that was an example of reform. It looks radical, right? It looks, it, it looks revolutionary. It's a way of saying that the system is broken uh, and, and it doesn't have to be this way. In fact, it shouldn't be this way. Things can be much, much better. So that's reform. That's, that's this activism. And so there's not just one faithful sort of biblical way to respond to the problem of poverty and serve the poor. Depending on your gifts, depending on your passions and your temperament, and depending on how God has equipped you, you're going to practice one or more of these different approaches to serving the poor. And I actually don't think that it matters so much which form you take. I think God's less interested in how you serve the poor, but more interested in whether you serve the poor. So the next question, what's it like though to be poor in Hamilton? What's it like to be poor in Hamilton? Like what is it that we need to know about poverty here in this city? Now, by every study, um, poverty is getting better in Hamilton. Like we are moving in a good direction and we are bouncing back after the collapse of the steel industry about 20 years ago. So that's really great. But it's also kind of deceptive because the question, the measure isn't really how many poor people are there in a city. The question is, how poor are the poor people there? So like every town, every city has poverty. Everybody, like Dundas has low income families. Burlington has low income families. The question is, what does it look like to be poor though in Hamilton? And it really depends on your neighborhood. In order to see this, you actually need to spend some time looking at specific neighborhoods. And one neighborhood that I think is important to, to look at is a neighborhood that the census calls CT37. It's Census Tract 37. This is the neighborhood that's bordered by Queen and James from, from uh, west to east. And it's bordered by Hunter and King from south to north. Uh, so this is called, again, Census Tract 37. The median household income in this neighborhood is $20,552. That means half the people in this neighborhood make more than $20,500. Half the people in this neighborhood make less than $20,500. 47% of the people in CT37 
families living in this neighborhood live in poverty. And here's the thing, this shocked me. The life expectancy of the people living in this neighborhood is 66 years. Life expectancy of people in this neighborhood, 66 years. Now in the heart of CT 37, at the intersection of of King and Hess, is this really interesting building, which really uh, illustrates what we're talking about here. We could talk uh, for a long time about the sorts of things that go on in this building, but it's Vanier Tower on the corner of King and Hess. And it's got 565 people living in this building, almost all of whom are low-income families. And And the thing I find interesting and shocking about Vanier Towers is that the average life expectancy of a person living in the, in Vanier Towers is 57 years old. The thing is, t- a 10-minute walk, just seven blocks away from Vanier Towers, is this neighborhood called CT17, which is the area south of Aberdeen to the base of the escarpment, where the, the median income in CT17 is $100,000 higher than in CT37. The average person in CT17 lives 30 years longer than the person in CT37. And just so you know, that's how poverty in Hamilton works. It's not just how many people there are. It's the reality that there are there are neighborhoods where people live in third world, they're living in third world levels of poverty, and you can walk seven blocks away and come to this neighborhood and feel like you are in Disneyland. And it is really, really hard to get out of that system. You know, not long ago, just a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with a family who, who've become friends of mine and their vehicle is parked because they couldn't afford to pay for the repair uh, that they needed to get done. They need, it was about a thousand dollar repair job. This family's on social assistance and it's, it seemed to me like this is a no brainer. Like Benediction Church, we've got some money in the bank. We could easily help. So uh, we, we made some calls. We looked into it. And what happens is this. If a church gives money to a family who is on social assistance, we actually, as a, as a charity, we have to issue a T4, like we have to issue a tax form for this family, and the government's going to find out that they received this gift of about a thousand bucks. And when the government learns that, all of a sudden they are no longer qualified for social assistance. They're being penalized for being on Ontario Works or ODSP. The thing is, when you get help to lift you out of poverty from somebody who isn't the government, you are punished for it. And that's just not okay. Like poverty is a really hard cycle to break out of. And, and, and just so you know, that's where a lot of our neighbors find themselves, okay? They, they need to be in Hamilton in order to have a chance to live affordably and being here in Hamilton, in the downtown core, guarantees that they stay poor. That's the system we find ourselves. That's what it's like to be poor in Hamilton. Now, why is this the church's responsibility? Why is this uh, up to us? Why doesn't God leave it up to the governments? Because they have more money and and more resources seemingly than than churches. So why is this our responsibility? You know, this this situation is pretty troubling if you give it time to really hit you. But I want you to imagine an alternative. I want you to imagine, like, what if we could snap our fingers and make poverty disappear for half of Hamilton's poor people? So if we could, I mean, just that that works out to about 88,000 people. If we could just snap our fingers and lift them out of poverty, that would change things in our city, not just for them, but also for the rest of Hamilton, because it's a lot of people. I mean, if we could fix poverty instantaneously, 
you know those people are not just going to stay downtown, right? They're not just going to stay downtown. They might buy a home on Aberdeen. They might buy a home in, in Crown Point or Stinson. They're not shopping at Walmart, no frills anymore. But now they're, now they're in front of you in line at Fortino's and Costco and, and Lime Ridge. Uh, they have moved into the neighborhoods. They, they live beside the rest of Hamilton. Their kids are going to the same schools as the rest of Hamilton. They're competing for the same jobs uh, as the rest of Hamilton. And I wonder, is Hamilton ready for that? Like you might be, you, you probably are. Maybe that would be a, a really great thing for you. you. For you, maybe that's like an answer to prayer, but I bet Hamilton wouldn't love that. You know, it seems to me everybody loves equality. Everybody loves justice and equality until the wealthy and the powerful are the ones who finally have to make room at the table for those who had less before. You know what I mean? As long as the poor stay concentrated into neighborhoods like 37, then the rest of Hamilton doesn't have to worry about them. They're a, they're a they. They're, we, can, we can other them and we can keep them in their box and we can only worry about them when they, when they stop traffic to ask for change. See, it seems to me our feeling toward the poor is it's a really good barometer. It's a really good uh, measure of our heart, of what's going on in our heart. Isn't, isn't that true? See, it's interesting. In the Bible, God isn't mainly interested in whether we fix poverty, but God is very interested in how we treat the poor. Let me say that again. God in Scripture isn't mainly interested in whether we fix poverty, but he's very interested in how we treat the poor. And just some verses to highlight that. Way back in Deuteronomy, God promised that there will never cease to be poor people in the land. The promised land. There will never cease to be poor people in the land. That's why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to the poor and the needy brother in your land. In fact, it seems that God goes a little bit further. God himself identifies with the poor and says like, I'm like them and they're like me. Proverbs 14, 31, the one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker, but the one who is kind to the needy honors him, honors the Lord. You know, when Jesus came during his ministry, he normalized giving to the poor. It wasn't weird or unusual. He, he didn't say, if you give to the poor. He says, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet and, and, and act like the hypocrites. He says, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. In fact, you might remember that Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4 was, quote from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. That's the, sort of the essence of Jesus' ministry. And someday he's going to come back and he's going to gather all the nations. And he's going to divide the nations into the sheep and the goats. And the, one of the measures that he will use to judge the nations in terms of who gets to come and spend eternity with the Father and those who go away into weeping and gnashing of teeth is how they treated the poor. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In doing it for them, you did it for me says Jesus. His little brother James agrees. He says the very same thing. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? 
The poor have a, have a special place in the heart and the affections of God. And then listen to this from the Apostle John. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. And you know, it seems to me that in all of these, how we treat the poor is a test for whether or not God's love lives in us. It's like this, we will never serve the poor, identify with them and serve the poor if we believe that deep down we are better or fundamentally we are more deserving of the life that we have than they are. We identify with the poor not because they deserve it or because we deserve it or because we're so great. We identify with the poor because Jesus did. Jesus left his riches in heaven And he became poor for our sake. He set it all aside and he became poor for our sake. And so in the same way, it's we who sacrifice. It's we who make space. It's we who take up the inconvenience. You know, Jesus laid down his life for us while we were sinners. While we were his enemies, that's when he died for us. When we had no way of paying him back, no way to earn it, no intention of paying him back, That is when Jesus laid down his life for us. And so as God's people, as the church, the least thing that we're going to do is we're going to serve the poor and we're not going to expect anything in return. And just so you know, the city of Hamilton won't do that. They're going to do a lot of great stuff, but the city of Hamilton can't do that. The city of Hamilton's initiatives, they're great. And they're pervasive and and effective in many, many ways. But the city initiatives only work if we can make, we can turn the poor from poor people into taxpayers. If we can take the poor and turn them into taxpayers within a generation or so, then these programs pay for themselves. And that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not how we do it. For us, serving the poor is its own reward. It's its own reward. You know, something really cool happens in the life of a believer when you spend enough time with the poor. You see Christ among them. You see him among them. Your prejudices start to dissolve and die. You learn to to repent of your prejudices. You learn love. You learn mercy. You learn compassion and empathy. You actually learn that you can love someone and you can serve somebody who, who, who can't pay you back. You actually can. And you know what that is? That's grace. That is grace. And when you can love another person the way that God loves them, then you will know how God loves you. Let me say that again. When you can love another person the way that God loves them, then you will know how God loves you. You will feel it. You will know it. You will experience it and you will you'll finally believe that God loves you that way too. And, 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 and that, that transforms everything. That transforms everything. That's why the church serves the poor. That's why it's our job and not the city's job. Because it is a form of discipleship. We are becoming more like Jesus as we serve the poor. And so final question. What if we don't get it right every time? What if we don't get it right every time? This question is easy to answer. It's easy to answer. We won't. We won't get it right every time. And and if we wait to serve the poor until we can do it properly, it'll never happen. 
That's the point. I mean, I could tell you story after story of people, poor people that I've tried to help, poor people that I, I, I am, am and have been friends with, and all of my stories are bad. Like all of my stories are stories of how I got it wrong. I could tell you about Naked Sandra. I could tell you about Cup of Water Carl. I could tell you about the Macho Man. I could tell you about Little Bill or Dancing Dave. But I'll tell you, the, last, the story I'll close with is the story of George. This isn't George, but years back, I was on my way home after this ministry that I led at Houston Street Baptist Church called Coffee's On. It's a, it was a drop-in for our, our poor neighbors in the north end of, of the city. And I had just finished serving. I was exhausted and I needed to pick up a few things. And I stopped at the LCBO. I'm going to pick up a few things at the LCBO, as I once in a while might. And, uh, and, and I got there and standing outside the LCBO is a rough looking older white guy who's, he looked like he'd been in a fight recently, um, but he was out there begging for change. And uh, I kind of pretended I didn't see him. I made my way straight into the store. And, and wouldn't you know it, he followed me in. Uh, so he grabs a bottle off the shelf that he could afford. And he came up to me specifically, targeted me, and he asked me if I could lend him a dime so he could buy this. I think it was a bottle of sherry or something. So in my head, in my head, all I could think of is, oh, why me? Why me? I just served like 50 of these guys at, at the church. Why can't I just get to the LCBO in peace? Why can't, can't I get in and out of the LCBO in peace? Like, come on, dude. If you can't afford to buy your alcohol, why, you, you shouldn't drink. Who, who does this? Who comes to the LCBO to, to beg? And so I said, what I said was, you know what? I actually, I don't think so, man. I don't want to give you money to buy alcohol. That's what I said to him. Note, I'm standing in the LCBO about to buy alcohol, judging this man because he wants, he's begging for change so that he could buy some alcohol. When that occurred to me, that's when I asked him, what if we just go get you some groceries instead? And so we did. He put down his stuff. I put down mine. And we went to, we left the LCBO empty handed. We went to the grocery store and I, I brought him home after. We, we spent almost a good couple, couple hours together. And as we did, I got to listen to some of his story. He got to listen to some of mine. It turned out that a, a few days before this, he had been put in the back of a police cruiser with a total cokehead who just started headbutting and smashing him in the face. And that's why George looked the way that he did. And the cops did nothing about it, according to George. And through the course of it, George, uh, you know, I got to share the gospel with George. I got to pray for him at the very end. And George told me that he loves God. And if not for his faith in God, he would have killed himself long ago because he had been kicked out of every church that he had ever been part of. And I never saw George again after that. And I learned something from that experience. One of the, you know, the thing that I learned from my time with George is that I'm really only willing to serve the poor people according to my schedule. Only when I can look like I know what I'm doing. Like only when I can do it right am I willing to serve the poor. And just so you know, that is not okay. And, and so maybe the reason why over the years I've spent so little time with the poor, especially more, much more in, in the past, less so today, but certainly this is true in my life. One of the reasons probably I've spent so little time with the poor is because I can't do it properly according to my terms. And, and each of us faces the same choice. And, and I just, in, in challenging you, I'm, let's not bail on the poor because we can't do it perfectly. All right, let's, let's not wait until it looks like we know what we're doing. Uh, let's agree that we're not going to punish the poor for us not having it all figured out. All right, what I'm saying is this. I'm saying that in his genius, 
God has made it our job to serve the poor because we're bad at it. Because we're not going to get it right. Because we're going to mess up. Because it's hard and humbling. uh, Because they can't thank you. Because they won't pay you back. That's why it's our job. Because they might stink up your car and they might uh, steal your purse when when you're not looking and they might call you fat or they might make fun of your baby. And I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. God has made it our job because it forces us to get over ourselves and love others. Because it makes God's love tangible and, and it makes God's love inescapably real for us and for them. And I wish that for you. And so I'm just going to close with a couple of questions that I'd encourage you to take home. A couple of questions. Number one, what fits best with how God has equipped you to serve? Number two is this, and then I'll pray. If you were poor, what would you want from your neighbors? Thank you for listening.